Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Well, hello there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the Impact Makers Podcast, where my goal is to provide you with tools, tips, resources, and insights to build a career that you love and a life that matters. Today, I'm sharing with you a conversation with my friend, Mary Ellen Slater. Mary Ellen is someone who's made a big impact in my life and in the lives of many others through her work, her community activities and leadership, and through the example that she sets as a working wife and mother who runs an extremely successful marketing agency that specializes in B2B content. I first met Mary Ellen in 2009 when she reached out to invite me to be on the Workforce Advisory Board at SmartBrief, a business news media publishing company where she was the Director of Content Development and Senior General Business and Finance Editor. The editors at SmartBrief not only created original content, they also curated blog posts and news articles from other publications to share with their community. So as a relatively new blogger, the opportunity to have my post reviewed and possibly featured by SmartBrief was a pretty big deal. It could mean the difference between a few hundred views in a day on my blog posts versus several thousand. Not that I was paying attention to the numbers, mind you, but okay, I was definitely paying attention to the numbers. I'd like to think that I've gotten better about that, but you know, sometimes you just want to know that somebody other than your mom read your blog post. While I was attending the 2009 SHRM annual conference, Mary Ellen noticed that I sent a tweet mentioning that I was on my way to attend a session on creating executive presence to communicate with confidence. Knowing that her audience of executive leaders would likely be interested in this topic, she immediately sent me a direct message and encouraged me to write about what I learned in the session in hopes that it would be worthy of featuring in their daily leadership brief. Now, I'm definitely not known for my insta-blogging skills, but because she personally asked me to, I reluctantly agreed and as a result spent the entire evening after the session in my hotel room writing what ultimately turned out to be a pretty short blog post called Six Tips for Developing Executive Presence. I shared the post on my blog and it was picked up by Smart Brief the next day, where Guy Kawasaki, the former chief evangelist at Apple, liked it enough to share it with his hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter. Let's just say that the result of him tweeting out the link to my blog post almost broke my blog, and that day shall forever be called the day that I got Kawasaki'd. Side note, ultimately that didn't result in me becoming rich or famous, but... It was a lot of fun. (laughs) Fast forward almost 10 years and Mary Ellen is still identifying interesting ideas and encouraging budding writers, but she's also taken her talents for creating and curating unique, informative, and thought-provoking content into running her own successful business, where she describes the work that she and her team does as special ops for content. At Reputation Capital Media Services, or RepCap for short, they specialize in helping companies to communicate technical and complex messages in simple language. I like the way that Mary Ellen describes what they do on her LinkedIn profile. We turn consultants into thought leaders. We turn big ideas into marketing gold. We turn your content ideas into reality. That's pretty cool. In addition to running her own business, Mary Ellen is extremely involved in her local community in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She's been honored as one of the Baton Rouge's 40 Under 40 and was part of the Baton Rouge Area Leadership Class of 2015. She also serves as a foundation board member of the Louisiana School for Math, Science, and the Arts and is a mentor with Young Entrepreneurs Camp. I think you can learn a lot from what Mary Ellen shares today about her journey. Her path has been somewhat unpredictable and to some extent unplanned, but her ability to identify her marketable skills early and often, her willingness to take big leaps toward opportunities placed in front of her, and her capability for building key relationships has ultimately caused her to thrive. But her journey has not been without some detours, pivots, and challenges along the way, including unexpectedly being laid off while going through a divorce three weeks before Christmas and on her daughter's birthday. But in typical Mary Ellen fashion, she turned that setback into a victory. 
I am inspired by Mary Ellen, and I love that she's making an impact not only through her work with her company and in her business community, but also in the lives of other women business leaders like myself. And I think she'll inspire you too. Well, hello there, Mary Ellen Slater. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with me today because I know you have a lot of things going on in your business and your time is valuable. So I appreciate the opportunity to share some of you and what you're doing with people who listen to the Impact Makers podcast. And I want to start with, you know, we were chatting before we hit record on this podcast, kind of the Mary Ellen story. And and I had to say, stop, stop, because everything you were sharing was a nugget. So (laughs) we're going to see if you can start with your own story and tell people a little bit about who Mary Ellen is, uh, how you got to where you are today and what you do. Sure. So I am the CEO of RepCap, a content marketing agency that specializes in B2B content. You know, we we work in in a couple of industries primarily, mainly HR tech, financial services, and insurance. You know, basically all, all the really sexy stuff. Like I, t- I tell people that our job is to take things that people assume will be uninteresting and make them fascinating and 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 provide, you know, share people's expertise around those ideas. And before I started this company, you know, it's not a huge company and we haven't been around that long, uh, just six years. I was a journalist. I worked for Smart Brief, an online news publisher uh, based in DC, B2B marketing again and news. And then before that, I worked for the Washington Post for eight years where I wrote a career advice column and worked as a business editor. Now, how did you, you know, that's a great place to kind of dive in here. How did you end up writing at the Washington Post as a career advice and business editor? Well, so it's a funny story, actually. Um, I did not go to school for journalism. I dabbled a little bit. I worked at my hometown paper, and I worked at um, the college newspaper for a semester. But my undergraduate degree is in agronomy. I studied soil science. And what that meant here in Louisiana specifically was that I spent a lot of time out in the marsh. I basically got to get a college degree where I would bounce between you know, studying chemistry in a lab and going out on a boat in the Gulf of Mexico. I, I felt like the luckiest girl in the world. And it turns out that the skills that you acquire getting a a degree like that, when you go out into the world, even though I hadn't studied journalism and I hadn't studied anything that was remotely vocational, um, I did know statistics and I knew how to write reports and I knew how to present my findings. I learned a lot of things that it turns out are pretty handy skills for a journalist. So I wound up getting, I worked at a small paper for a little bit, and then I had the good fortune of meeting Bill Walsh, um, uh, the copy editor on the financial desk at the Post. And he uh, immediately, we had a great, we just hit it off and started chatting. He asked me, invited me to come. We met at a conference. I actually will always tell people, like, how did you, how did you meet him, right? Because he's kind of a legend. Um, he recently passed away, um, kind of a big loss to our editing community, but he he said, you know, I was like, God, I can't believe you talked to him, you know, like, he, weren't you nervous? I was like 22. And I just, I was at a conference for copy editors and I'd had a couple of beers and he was standing there and I was just dumb enough to walk up to him and say, hey, you're Bill Walsh, right? And about 15 minutes later, I had an invitation to take a copy editing test that it turned out I do pretty, did pretty well on um, because he put lots of math questions in there. Right. So it's actually apparently being a journalist who isn't afraid of of calculating percentages on the fly. It turns out that's a valuable skill. So I got a job. Fascinating. So that was the reason why the (laughs) math questions were on there? Because Yes. Because we're business, right? So if I had gone, it's funny, you know, this is where the luck part comes in. Had I applied or gone to decorate like to the national desk or the foreign desk or any of those areas, like the math thing wouldn't have played as big of a role. But because it was really important in business that you understand these concepts, it turns out that, that I was able to stand out. So it was an interesting way to, like, it's again, same skill, same things that I, same interest, and I was able to turn them into, I think, you know, a, a, a very satisfying, you know, interesting career as a journalist, just taking so, those same skills. So we're dashing all the hopes of the kids out there saying that algebra and math will never be used in real life. Is that correct? (laughs) Absolutely. Because let me tell you something else. Like later on when I left journalism and I became a marketer, my old friend math is still there. Like the math has just gotten more interesting and more more complicated in some ways and simpler in others. Um, Yeah, we talk a lot about database decision making, you know, and big data and data analytics. Well, that's where like that basic numeracy, I mean, you have to have that if you're going to talk about these concepts 
Um, so I would say one of the things that I brought into my career, you know, again, I pivoted from being a journalist, a traditional journalist, to being a digital journalist, and then moving over to owning this marketing agency. One of the things I brought, in addition to my writing skills and my editing skills, was that comfort with the data and, and interpreting the data and using it to, to drive the story and being comfortable working with that. So it's the same base level skills. I've just adapted them to each of these different environments that I find find interesting. Well, I'm not going to leave the the journalism piece yet. We'll keep, we'll get to where you are today, but so it's it's still pretty amazing to me. So you met Bill at this conference. You took the copywriting test. It had math on it, so you aced it. Um, and what was the first job you had there? This was at the I Washington was, Post. Oh yeah, right? so I was a part time copy editor on the financial desk. And what that specifically meant for being a, the brand new a newbie there and being you know 23 years old, it meant I had to edit stock agate. It meant I had to proofread. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember when we used to print stock results in the paper, when that was the way you found out how your stock did the day before. I'm old enough to remember, but I don't right? I read those. <laughs> no, but, but that was where you would go. Unless you were like a hardcore like stock market investor, that is where you went for stock prices. If you wanted to go see how Coca-Cola did the day, you know, it was doing, you checked the day before. So like that was one of the things I did. And then also just editing news, like copy editing news stories. You know, it was like we saw ourselves as the last line of defense on a story before it went into print. Because remember, we were printing things, so we couldn't take it back and fix it. Um, the other part of that, I guess I was also, you know, one of the things copy editors do that newspapers, I don't think people, a lot of people realize is we wrote headlines. So in terms of a, a way to sort of teach your brain to think about writing, it's like every, whatever I read, I would spend, I would edit a story. And the amount of time that I would spend write, editing that story, like actually editing the text, I would spend an almost equal amount of time thinking about the headline. And that served you very well through the other careers that you've had, obviously. <laughs> That's all you get. You get like, you get those five words, right? It's like, can yeah. you take this whole thing and turn it into five words? And, and you can see like that would, co and copy editors do that in newspapers traditionally. And I think that's one of the things that people don't always realize that the writer doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. So you were writing and doing some work in different areas. So how did that transition into the career advice column? Did you, were you just spouting off advice and they finally said, just here's your own column, Mary Ellen? <laughs> yes, people just, I'm, look, I'm an ENTJ and there's nothing that pains me more than if somebody's doing something wrong somewhere less efficiently than it could be. Um, you, but, you must be in pain. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is why consulting is my perfect job. <laughs> um, so what happened in that case is like they actually had a, there was a woman that had used to write the column and she was fantastic. She had built up this career column. It was for 20 somethings. Um, she kind of, it was, it was wonderful. Um, her name was Amy Joyce. It's a terrific writer. It was moving on into some other roles at the post and they actually had an open audition for the job. They said, Hey, we're looking for somebody to write this. It's like not somebody's full-time job. It's just going to be your little extra something, you know? And they said, pitch us on two stories give us and, and then write them and they're due on this date. And I went out and I, I did these two stories and I got, I, I didn't realize I was doing something interesting at the time, but instead of just giving people advice directly, like my advice, I was 23, 24, I guess. What do I know? Right. So I said, well, I'll just call people and I'll interview people. And I switched it to a reported column, like a fully reported multi-source column where I would interview three or four people and pull together these perspectives. And and I remember when they offered me the job, you know, they said, wow, you like really sourced these really, really well. And that was what got it for me. It wasn't like doing some like, oh God, I've got some deep insight personally. It wasn't that I had some flair for words. It was the work that I put into connecting with other people and sort of teasing out in their insight, which I would still say is one of the things that I enjoy doing the most is connecting with other people and finding out what they're all about. So during that time, who was, did you interview like any big name people or celebrities for your advice column? Um, I interviewed like all kinds of cool people. Um, and I did, I guess the other thing I should say is I did a couple of different things. I also worked in real estate. Um, I'm trying to think of who all did I interview? I feel like some of the folks I've interviewed have turned up over the years in other, um, other settings. Oh, here's a good one. This one I always... People are surprised by this. I interviewed Elizabeth Warren. Oh, okay. And it wasn't about politics because this was before she had anything. She had, she had not run for office. And she used to be a regular source for me. She had written a book about real estate and personal finance with her daughter called The Two-Income Trap. 
And I want, I'm trying to remember, I, I talked to her like a number of times. I would interview her for career advice, like some personal finance from that angle. I would also talk to her about my real estate stuff. So sometimes these things get a little blurry, but it was fascinating to watch her. Like she was always so gracious, right? She would always, you know, respond really quickly to the calls. And I mean, she would just give me like the best quotes. And years later, after I had left the post and I was working at Smart Brief, at this point, she was running the Consumer Protection Agency and was presenting at a SIFMA conference. I was at this um, industry event and I walked up to her and I said, hey, like you probably don't remember me, but, and then she was like, of course I remember you. And she was like, how is Rainy? Your daughter. My mind was blown. Uh-huh. Yeah. My, my older daughter, like she remembered me going out on maternity leave with my child. Hmm. And I was like, how does this woman <laughs> have all of these details in her head? Um, and that was like, it was just so personal and so warm. At that, at that point, I decided that she was like magical because I don't know how on earth she remembered that from our like handful of conversations over the years. It's amazing how, um, how we view people that actually see us, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I was like, I mean, I was just floored. I, did, I had no expectation whatsoever that she would remember me, but she did. And she was so warm. I, I mean, she must have like the most amazing memory. Mm-hmm. So did that eventually turn into a full-time gig there for you at the Post? Oh, oh yeah. So I worked eventually, I want to say I was probably part-time for a couple of years. And then I, got, I moved on. They gave me a full-time position. I got a master's degree in journalism while I was there. I wound up getting promoted to be, I, was, I became an assignment editor, not just a copy editor. I was working in the real estate section. Oh, yeah. So like I was there, I would say I was part-time two of my eight years there. So I was able to get a promotion. So that, so the journalism degree, how did that um, complement your agronomy degree? Did did that give you a different way of looking at things, or just more refinement of your craft? I would say that I would call that experience refinement of craft um, because at the point at that point I'd been working as a professional journalist for several years, and I wanted to deepen my understanding of things. I wanted to kind of step back and actually look at some of the theory behind what we were doing. You know, and I just wanted a little bit of headspace for that and. The program at the University of Maryland is, is excellent. It is both a great practical training for being for becoming a, a great journalist. It's also a good way to kind of get a, a grounding in like the things that are happening in journalism. I mean, we were very early. I want to say I got my degree. That was 2005. And we were inside that organization academically. We were already having discussions about social media and like the impact that that was going to have about the news. And I almost want to go back. I look at how quaint some of the things that we talked about or like, I don't think we ever predicted like exactly how this played out in terms of the era of fake news. Like I, I think of all the scenarios we imagined, I don't think that was the one we imagined. Yeah. I don't think many people did or have. So you left there and moved on to Smart Brief. What was the opportunity that you uh, took at Smart Brief? So at that point, I really, you know, wanted to move into digital journalism. I, I would say after getting my master's and sort of seeing some of those things too that were happening in digital, the post is a wonderful place, but in many ways moved a little slow on that front. I mean, now they're like a plus digital presence, but at the time it was a little slow for my taste. So I went over and worked at Smart Reef and I was helping build out their original content channels and then their newsletters where they didn't have a partner. And it was all again around those topics that, that I love so much, you know, HR, um, leadership, workforce, career, like we launched a career newsletter, we launched this workforce newsletter. Um, But yeah, so I just kind of took that thing I was doing in print and turned it around to these digital formats. And I spent, I spent three years there. It was a really, it was a really good experience. I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. And eventually after three years decided to move back to your hometown, Baton Rouge is your hometown, right? Oh, no, no. My hometown has 200 people in it in North Louisiana. I I will never move back there of my own accord. (laughs) (laughs) You visit. I was about about to say they have more horses than people, but then I realized that that would make you excited and you probably would want to go there. (laughs) Well, that sounds like my kind of place. You're right. Right. (laughs) So you moved back to Baton Rouge and decided Mm -hmm. to start your own business but I'm sure that wasn't a off-the-cuff decision. What was kind of the thinking process that went into that? Well, I, I like to tell people I spent 13 years trying to figure out how to move back home. And uh, Smart Brief was going to allow me to work remotely. So I was taking them up on that offer. I was also in the middle of a divorce, you know, and I had a, a daughter. She was five at the time. I guess she was four. And I really just needed to come home. You know, I needed to come back to the land of, you know, sunshine, sweat, and crawfish and outdoor festivals, you know, half the year. Mm -hmm. So I came on home 
And while I was here, though, so this is the part, you know, kind of back to talking about pivoting. Sometimes you pivot because you want to, and sometimes you pivot because you have to. And this one was driven by have to, right? I was the um, smart brief. It was about three weeks before Christmas. Um, it was actually Rainey's birthday, my older daughter. And I got up that morning and I got a phone call from the CEO of the company and the head of HR, which you know, it's never good if it's like the CEO and the head of HR on an unscheduled phone call. They're not, they're not, calling. <laughs> yeah. no. they're not calling just to say great job usually. Unfortunately. No, no. So in fact, it was, they were restructuring the company and they laid off the whole team that I was on. And it was one of those things where I was like, uh, all right, okay. It's three weeks before Christmas. I don't, uh, I don't have a job now. Um, they did give us a very generous severance. I mean, it was, you could tell that this was painful for them, but they were, you know, just business needs. Right. So they go through and they, I get that. I look at it. I look at Rainy you know, and I told her what happened. I spent about five minutes crying on the bed because I'd kept her home from daycare that day because it was her birthday, right? So then I was like, let's just go back and we're just going to go back and enjoy your birthday. And then I, I started sharing that news with a few friends. And I had had, I'd been thinking in the back of my mind about starting this company, about starting an agency that would create editorial content for brands. You know, this is not something that existed like six years ago to the degree that it does now. And I, I was like, I think I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this company and we're going to make like awesome white papers and blog posts and it's all going to feel like journalism. It's not going to feel like marketing copy. And as I started telling people that I was going to, um, that I'd lost my job, the first person that called me in response to this when I posted the news um, was Jen Benz at Benz Communications, who is a, a wonderful friend and mentor and asset, and I think, in our HR tech community. And her response, like, I guess, remember, I just stopped crying. And she's like, congratulations. Tell me about your business. So before you <laughs> had mentioned to her that you were going to start a business, she said? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Before I said anything. She knew that she and I had talked that I was thinking about doing it. She knew that I had just lost my job at Smart Brief. And she was not going to have my pity party, basically. <laughs> it was like, immediately, congratulations. Tell me about the business. Like, it was like, there was just no, she wasn't going to have anything else. And so then from there, I decided to start a company. I decided if I was ever going to find myself unemployed three weeks before Christmas, it was going to be my own fault. Well, tell me kind of what, what the process you went through to start the company. So it's one thing you were uh, still in D.C. or were you in Baton Rouge? Oh, I was in Baton Rouge at that point. Yep, I was so, in Baton Rouge. We had moved and, and I was so in you, Baton Rouge. So you had moved. So that was still a new thing. Um, you get this news three weeks before Christmas on your daughter's birthday a friend calls a good friend and, and kind of challenges you to start your own business. What mm -hmm. was, what were some of the first steps you took after that call? So the first thing I did was I actually sat down since I, they, again, they had for generally offering to cover health insurance for a bit, had given me severance. I sat down and, and did a spreadsheet because, you know, you know, I like my math, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to go make a spreadsheet that said, okay, how, what would it take to make this work? Like how long could I live? Like I made, I set three numbers. One was, what is the bare amount that I have to earn at this to support me and my daughter, like for one year? Like, what would I have to do? And I thought of it as like monthly income, you know, like what's the minimum? I knew I had some severance that I could stretch out, you know, unemployment would kick in. Um, so like that gave me a little bit of a runway. I had savings. The second part, the second number was what would I have to do to just replace what I was making before? Okay, it was two number. The third number was like, what would be the like, oh my God, like, I can't believe, like, I get paid this much to do this job that I love so much. And I wrote that number down too. And then I got to work. I put it out there, like what I was going to be doing. I got a website built really quickly. I you know, got email set up. I mean, luckily there are all these tools that actually make this work so easy now. Like I had a Gmail email address. We had a website up, like a, one of my friends is a designer, Shannon. She came in and she built me this website. Like, I think it was live in like two weeks, right? We had a logo. We had, we had everything. And I was like up and running. And I got my first client like in three weeks. So how, well, how did you get that client? That sounded Somebody, really easy. Oh, I bet it wasn't. Yeah. It was. It actually was. It actually was pretty easy because I told people what I was doing. And it turns out, as I suspected, there was a need for what I was offering. And um, Scott Eblen came to me and said, hey, well, I've got this blog. Can you help me out with it? And so I came in and we worked together. As he, every once in a while, too, I'll send him a note you know, to say, yep, I'm still your first client. No matter what, I'm still your first client. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't, we don't even work with him anymore, but he's like amazing and doing some cool stuff. If you ever want to check out like good resource for leadership content and speaking. But he, um, 
it was like I had to sign that one. Then I got another client a couple of weeks later. And then by Mardi Gras, which was in February of that year, I got, I signed a deal with Monster. And the size of that contract was actually more money than I had ever made in my life. And so I was that, like, so you hit, your, <laughs> you hit your third number on the sheet. <laughs> I, I blew, I blew way past the third number. I went way past that because it was like for a year, you know, it was like a deal to help with content strategy and blogging and managing because it also helped me. That contract was also the point where I told myself for that first year, all I wanted to do was make enough money by myself. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. And then I got at the end of that first year, you know, I had blown through the goals that I had set for myself and I knew that it, and I was bringing in contractors to work on things. So if like something needed design, I would go get a partner for that work. I would do my part and I would find other people to work with me. At the end of that first year, I was like, yep, I think we have this. We can, we can start an agency now. Like I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I know what our offerings were. Well, I, I started so. hiring people. I, I don't want to skip over the fact that, you know, I th- you say it was easy, but the reality was you you were known for doing good work at Smart Brief and for your, what you had done at the Post, and you had developed relationships. So Scott was a relationship, the people that oh, helped absolutely. you. And then I assume the business at Monster came to you through a relationship as well. Mm-hmm. So, so it, the fact that, does. yeah, you know, you, you connected with these opportunities by having done great work, the people that you knew knew you did great work and they had a need. So it was kind of like the perfect storm of all of those three things, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's the essence of marketing anyway, right? It's like, dude, what are you, what are you great at and how do you make sure people know about it? Mm-hmm. And, and so I did. I had this very specific thing that I was offering and I did. I leveraged those relationships. And, you know, and then over time, I mean, that relationship had just gotten bigger, right? Like, I mean, I, I consider myself a connector. Like, I, I feel like I think you do too. It's like, just like, I just like to get out there and figure out like what people are up to and, and figure out if I can't, if I can help them. And if, I, if it's not me, like, how do I get them to the people who can help them? Mm-hmm. So, so what are some of the services that you were offering in the beginning? You wanted to make HR tech, financial services and insurance services sexy. <laughs> how, how does one do that? You know, it's funny. Early on, I would say my, my stuff was very tactical. It was like, okay, we'll write your blog. You know, we will write your white papers. We will create your infographics. Um, we will run your social, you know, at the time. But that was like, it was so simple then. I felt like so many of these tools were pretty nascent. I feel like the bar was pretty low on the, in some of the content, especially in the industry, like the particular industries I was working in. But it was a big improvement just to have somebody come in and like professionally edit content. Like that was enough. Like email newsletters, I guess we did a lot with email newsletters because of things I learned at Smart Brief. But, you know, really it was just that simple. And I would say one of the biggest things is it has changed over time is that we realized that people don't so much need help with producing the writing, which of course that's so important, but they often need help pulling things together in a meaningful way that's tied to their business strategy. So from, I spend most of my time now in my work functioning more as a consultant, like as a strategic partner for my clients, like helping them figure out how, how to use content to drive their business goals. It's less like some people don't come to me and say, I need 10 blog posts anymore. They come to me and say, Ooh, we are losing people at the bottom of the funnel. Can you take a look at this and see what's happening? You know, and that's the kind of problem I like to solve with content. You've been in business now six years, eight years? Six years, exactly. I guess six and a half if we're rounding. Six and a half years. So what, how has things changed? How have things changed and evolved in those six years in kind of the world that you are working in? So I would say there's, again, things are a lot more interactive. I I think we're doing more of that work. It's less like, hey, write a blog. I would say one of the biggest things that we do that's different. We used to always say, be like a publisher. For the longest time, it was like, you're on your corporate blog, but think like a publisher. But now I would say what we are most often brought in to do is not make people like publishers, but to make them actually publishers. So we create a lot of branded magazines. Like it isn't just, you know, write in the style. It's like, how could you create your content to like really generate attention and serve your audience. And it's a more, I think it's a more competitive market. I think it's, these decisions are more complex. I think there's more noise than ever before. And I think people desperately want trusted curated resources of like a real insight, not, not what we call them. We call it sludge at RipCap. We say, Oh, this isn't, this isn't insight. This is just sludge. 
Mm-hmm. We try to we're trying to desludge the world. Like we want to desludge huh. the content. That's a nice tagline. Desludging the world. <laughs> no more sludge. No more sludge. <laughs> so you mentioned the magazine, and I assume that's digital magazine, correct? Not printed. You know, sometimes they're printed too. I actually sometimes switching back to print can be a really good strategy depending on your audience because it stands out, right? If everybody is online now and nobody's printing anything and you turn up with this beautiful printed magazine, that's memorable, right? Mm-hmm. So, but now mostly it's digital. And I'd say as the example, you know, last year we made the decision, we we were sitting around saying, oh God, our blog, what can we do with our blog to make it more interesting, our agency blog? And in the end, we realized that there was nothing we could do because it's an agency blog and people are always going to think of it that way and it's always going to limit its reach. So we killed it. We killed our blog. We killed our, by all other measures, successful agency blog. And instead, we launched a new digital magazine that's for managing editors, which is the role. You know, like I so said, I was saying how like people, it's not so much about generating content, but you need that strategic thinker. You need that person that's directing the content and keeping an eye on everything. And that person is the managing editor. And so we bought managingeditor.com and we launched a magazine there. And in many cases, it's the same style of content that we put on our old blog. But now because the, the interface is different, the the way that it's, you know, since it's on a magazine, people feel differently about it. Like we've seen like amazing growth and interaction. Like it's, it's beyond anything that like we ever saw on the blog. Hmm. All because we, we just changed the perspective. So if I'm a, whether I'm a person employed in the corporate world, kind of thinking about how to get, whether it's our employer brand or our consumer brand out there, or I'm an entrepreneur thinking about how to get my brand out there, what should I be thinking about in terms of content based off of what you're experiencing and how you're seeing things change? So I think the biggest thing that that I would say, my biggest principle that's driving everything we do right now is less is more, quality over quantity. People are not looking for like a bunch of content like that just superficially covers questions. People are hungry for insight, especially on the B2B side. That's really what people are looking for. They're looking for like sort of evidence of how your brain works, right? They're looking for something that, like unique and original. And like, and I find that also long, I feel like there's a resurgence of long form content because again, insight, right? This isn't about writing 20, 300 word blog posts that like superficially cover a topic. I would say to you, turn around and write me one 1500 word piece that goes really deep on a topic that you're really passionate and knowledgeable about. And if you create content like that, you don't have to write every day. And you might write privately every day just to exercise your brain, but you could publish once a month if that's the kind of content you were producing. Mm -hmm. So is that something that, I mean, I know you're, I've read many things that you've written and I've always joked with you, you kind of have this, you can, we can be at the same conference or event, listen to the same speaker. And then I go and look online and 10 minutes later, you've produced a great blog post about what that speaker talked about. (laughs) (laughs) So is that, you know, and that's, for a while was a lot of what people were saying, blog frequently, blog often, you know, or even if you're a company, share stuff on your website often to get, you know, the SEO and the traffic. Now it's shifting to more evergreen kind of sticky content, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just depth. Like, just give me something with depth, mm-hmm. you know? It doesn't mean evergreen, maybe. I mean, the good thing is, like, you probably only have, like, a handful of, like, really good ideas anyway. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a shelf life of at least a few months if you write material like this. Whereas blog posts, I mean, yeah, I can still write a blog post, like, within two hours if that's what you want, um, like, at an event. And sometimes that's appropriate. But I would say shift it more toward like taking your time a little and really thinking through your idea and thinking about the things that you know that other people don't know. And how do you share that? Do you think that anyone can and should write? Yes, I do. I do. I think everybody should write. It's just for the discipline of it privately because it's a way to organize your thoughts. Now, in terms of what you put out into the world, in terms of your marketing, I think you should be flexible about that. Some people are amazing on video and terrible at writing. That means they should make videos, right? Mm-hmm. If they're, you know, if you've got great relationships and are good, great interview style, make a podcast. You know, if you're good at short form, then do short form. I would say tailor it to your actual strengths. But I think internally on the inside, like you know, everybody should write. Mm-hmm. 
So we, if we look kind of at Mary Ellen Slater's career, we, we, we started with a love of the land, mm-hmm. <laughs> ended up in DC writing for a major publication uh, in 2012, started your own business at the kitchen table with a spreadsheet, trying to figure out how you're mm-hmm. going to eat and live indoors. Um, and you've grown to now your business, your customers, your target are typically what fortune 100 companies. Oh, Oh, I would say, you know, there's a lot of big companies, but I would say the thing that actually distinguishes our customers is not so much their size, it's their ambition. It's our, do you have an idea that you think is worth spreading? I guess to borrow the TED phrasing, um, do you have like some, you have insights. So our best customers are people who have big ideas. They've got a great base, like they, they know who they want to share it with, but they just don't have the time or the in-house resources to to like execute that by themselves. Like they want a strategic partner who helps them think through the best places to focus. And, and they want somebody to just want like the muscles to get it written and get it produced. Mm-hmm. Well, you've described, you know, and you've mentioned several different times throughout your career where you've kind of changed directions either because of your interests or based off the market need or where you see things going in the future. And so it's not just a pivot. You've been spinning a lot, but, <laughs> you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's how it feels. I'm dizzy. <laughs> yeah, but I think you, you mentioned like the magazine and, and killing the blog, kind of what, what is happening in the future for you and your company. So it's funny, this magazine, we launched it and, and we've watched the audience for this like grow so quickly. Like there's such a need for this, for this information we're finding in this community that we're building. So sort of while we're still consultants, you know, we're certainly still consulting and running an agency over here. Um, we're also looking for that, that event to like, what's another way that we could help people get those ideas out there. And so one of the options on the table is hosting, hosting our own in-person event. So I've been thinking a lot about like what that would look like, like as another way to bring that community together of managing editors at brands, because it's such an exciting job. It's such a crazy job. Um, and I think we need each other, you know, to, to get through this. And I don't really know. I mean, there's a lot of marketing events and there's content events, but I'm sort of thinking about how do we bring that RepCap experience? Like, what would it look like in person? So mm-hmm. I'm still working through the details on that, but it's, it's definitely an option right now. Yeah. Well, how has your company changed from you kind of being the initial employee and working with a few freelancers here or there? What does RepCap look like today? So I would say, you know, RepCap now is a, is a team. Like I sometimes tell people we're special ops for content. Like don't call us because you need a billboard made. Don't call us because you, you need to see the generic ad agency. Like I can give you any number of like great ad agencies and marketing agencies who can do those things for you. We come in to solve a couple of very specific problems around content marketing. One of them is I've got big ideas and I don't have the resources in-house to pull this off. Like, help me figure out what to do, like how to get this done. And the other one is uh, we're producing a lot of content. We're not getting the results we want to see tied to the business strategy. Can you help us get in alignment, like get this, get this synced up? So those are the two kind of problems that, you know, we really solve now. And we do it as a team. Right. So it's like I have a certain perspective that I bring to this. You know, we've got another consultant, Lee, who's been with me for a long time. She's pivoted her 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 skill set just as many times as I have. Um, you know, just how we keep up with marketing and how we keep up with content. But more interactive, you know, we found that like we've had to get go deeper on that side of the business, which is very exciting. Like we really like building interactive tools, interactive content. Um those are probably the biggest shifts, like just constantly upskilling. And I think that's probably one of the things that I would think I find the most fascinating is like both as a person, this need to constantly build on that skill set. It's like, yes, I could point back to you about my agronomy degree and how the 21 hours of statistics that LSU's College of Agriculture made me take, like how that still benefits me today. I can absolutely draw a straight line from that. But the part where I had to teach myself, but I had to teach myself what lifetime value of a customer meant. I had to teach myself what customer acquisition cost meant, right? Like it might've been grounded in that, the basics, but like you're constantly having to learn new things. And I think that you have to keep doing that both as an individual planning your own career and as a business owner, if you're going to keep up with the market, because I, I feel like it's not going to stop. Like there's no, there's no, there's no you know, sort of, map that I see where you could just rest on your laurels and the knowledge that you have right now and expect to be in business or, or employed five years from now. Mm-hmm. When I think from my perspective, again, you as my friend and someone that I've known and watched from you starting your business, it's certainly um, 
impressive in a lot of ways to see what you've accomplished uh, just from the work that you do alone, but also as a, a woman business owner. And I think you've been recognized in your community for that um, as, you know, kind of having a woman owned business. Um, and the fact that since you've started RepCap, you've added to your personal team, you've added a husband mm -hmm. and a, a second daughter. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and during, you know, during that time to watch you again as a, a woman and business owner of a small business, I think you took a significant time off for your maternity leave. Mm -hmm. um, you've done some really, I think, progressive things in terms of how you, uh, the work environment that you create at RepCap and for the employees and the freelancers that you work with, maybe things like pay transparency and, you know, the maternity leave that you took, uh, tell well, me some of the, the things that you, you have done with your business that probably aren't what's done in the traditional sense. So I would say I was worse at taking my own maternity leave and then I was like, I'm, I'm prouder of the fact that I was able to give my employees one. I did have an employee who has had actually two children while we worked together. And like when she came to me with the second one and wanted to take a longer leave, like we figured out how to make it happen and we did it fully paid. And I know other business owners, I, I'd always heard over the years, oh, we can't possibly afford that. Like, how could you do that? And like, we just made it work both times. She was very valuable to me as an employee. And I wanted her to have that experience. And like, she, when you put it in the context of like, what was she really asking for? Like three months with her newborn? I want her to work for me forever. <laughs> like, so suddenly those three months seem like nothing. So, you know, we, we found that we just work through the logistics. We don't declare we can't do it. We sit down and we say, okay, well, how will we do it? How, how could we do this? What would this look like? And in the same sense, yeah, we pack, we've, we've practiced pay transparency from the beginning. In fact, actually, we practice open books. Like, so anybody wants to see what, how the business is doing, like, we share that really freely. I just, it's a small company. And so people are putting a lot of trust in me, you know, for their livelihoods. So I feel like it's fair to, like, share that back with them so they know how we stand. What caused you to make that decision, though? I don't, I guess that at the Washington Post, you had learned that. And, you know, how did you decide when you started your own company to say, I'm going to share everything with the employees? Well, so it's sort of funny. When you work at a public company, you do have that knowledge, right? Like, that's one of the things, I guess, as a business reporter and working at a public company, the Washington Post was public. So I could always go see, like, well, how much did we make last year? How much did we make last quarter? So I feel like it's not that crazy of an idea. The other thing at the Post is we were a union shop. And, and so I also knew what all my coworkers were making. This never like impeded my ability to do my job. I mean, it did let me know, well, if you want to make more money, you have to do these things because this is the top of your pay band. And if you want to get promoted, you have to go over and do this role instead. So I just, I don't see... I don't, I've never really seen the harm in it. Maybe, maybe this is me being a, my former union member talking. I know I'm a business owner now, but like, I just always believe that we should talk about pay. Mm -hmm. That's and actually the sunshine is the best disinfected, you know, as that old quote goes. And I think that the only way we're going to actually levelize these conversations is to share real data and be truthful about who's getting paid what and why. Has and it ever, can you point to any uh, problems or any difficulties you've had as a result of having that kind of policy in your work? Only once. And I look back on this now and I realize what I have, I learned from it in terms of what I had to do going forward. And the problem was that I had a young employee who really did not have enough. Um, she was very talented in terms of being creative and the type of work she was doing, but she did not understand the relationship between what she got paid and what we built her out as. Like she looked at it as like, well, if you're getting this much money for my time, why don't I get, why do I only get this much? Right. So she just could not, even though the information was there in front of her, like she was not sort of ready to like understand that, understand the relationship to those things. So now we make it an effort to be like much more, she was very resentful of it. Right. And so we make it, a, we make an effort to make sure that people know what they're looking at. So when we, we don't just throw the numbers at them, like once a year, you know, our head of operations will go through and say, here's the top, here's the bottom, here's where you'll find this, here's how all these numbers come together. And whether people sit around and obsess over it or not, I don't think they do, but it's still good to at least say, here's how we get to these numbers. I, I don't think that hurts anybody's business. Like that doesn't hurt to have that information and to have your employees have that information. Mm -hmm. Well, so, you know, we, we've got you sitting with the spreadsheet, putting the number, the, oh my God number out there, which you blew away in your first year. That's not common. Um, <laughs> what, what's next? What's coming? You know, have you sat down with another spreadsheet and kind of said, I do. <laughs> well, then I got really, I started, you know, I got better than spreadsheets or tools better than spreadsheets I've learned. But last year I did the, um, 
Goldman Sachs 10,000 small business program. And what that program, you know, I was at my fifth, sort of fifth year of the company. And that program is designed for second stage businesses who want to grow, who want to sort of level up, like not just get a little bit bigger, but like really grow. And I spent my summer going to this class. I mean, it was, it was really intense. Um, I mean, I just highly recommend it to anybody who has, they're in that stage or they're, they've kind of got some revenue, they've got a little bit of traction, but they don't know what to do to like sort of take it, take it to the next level. I highly recommend this program. But they forced me to think through my essentially five-year plans. And I went ahead and made a 10-year plan and, and look, mapped out in a very systematic way, like how I would grow this business to the size that I wanted and to, toward the exit that I wanted. And right down to like, okay, well then when would you hire? And like, what would be the triggers for all of these things? And they had us actually write this plan. And I remember writing this business plan. I used a tool called Live Plan, which I also highly recommend to other business owners. It's a lean business planning tool. So you're not just creating like these one and done kind of on a piece of paper business plans. It's a dynamic tool that syncs into like your accounting software. So as I'm working on this, this plan, you know, I first did it and I put it down. I was like, oh my God, that was exhausting. And then you start executing on those things. You start executing on the things that you planned out. And managing editor was part of that process. Um, the hiring that I'm doing right now is part of that process. And then you start, you go back and you look at it three months later and you see your progress towards your goals. And you look at it six months later, your progress for your goals. Like, is everything perfect? Is everything going smoothly against that plan? No, it's not. You know, I mean, things still happen in the business, but am I gradually, do I feel like we're heading in the right direction? Do I feel like our, we'll achieve our goals, you know, our 10-year goal? Absolutely. Like, I feel very confident. And I wouldn't have felt that way if I hadn't taken the time to spend two months to actually work on the business not just in it. Now, is that something you mentioned a class? So it was, mm -hmm. you would go and get instruction from people on how to set these plans and then be given assignments yes. to go away and do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So we would meet, it was like a whole work day, like every week for like eight weeks. I want to say it's like a blur to me now. And they would coach you. You had a business coach and they would coach you through that whole process. Mm. Okay. And it was something Goldman Sachs actually totally provided this as a, as a community resource. Oh, free? Mm -hmm. If you apply and you get accepted, yep, it's free. Okay, so you have to apply. And in cities all over, they do it in a bunch of different cities. Well, we'll definitely link up to that in the show notes. That sounds like a, a great mm -hmm. thing that they're doing there. So so they've got you on the path to now the 10-year plan. And I know you are doing some hiring and you have added some employees to kind of take off some of the things that you mm -hmm. started doing in the beginning. So what what's consuming your thoughts these days in terms of what's new and next? Sure. So once I get uh, get these new folks on board and get them working on their things, the next move for me is I actually am going to, to write a book. I'm working on a career advice book for writers. So again, it kind of some of the things we were just talking about, like how do you take how do you take like this career? How do you build a sustainable, interesting career as a writer in the modern economy? Because I absolutely believe you can do it. I know so many amazing people who, you know, I mean, there are all these stereotypes about broke writers, but I actually know a lot of people, a lot of really successful people who make their living with words. And I want to share those stories and get that inspiration in the hands of, of college students whose parents might be, you know, giving them too much crap about majoring in English. I can't wait for that. Do we have, is that on the 10 year plan? No, that's in the one year plan. That's on the one year plan. Hold me accountable for that. Hold me, I'm putting I that on it. my Christmas list. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hold me, you got to hold me accountable to that. That's because if I say it out loud, it'll happen. If I don't, then, you know, you know how this works. <laughs> well, you have said it and I will hold you accountable because I would definitely like to read that and in, in your thoughts on that. So, um, Thanks for, for doing that. As you said, I think there are a lot of people out there that could get some inspiration from someone sharing that it is possible to um, make a living with your words. I like the way you said that. What about in terms of, you know, your career? You've, as we said earlier, kind of pivoted, shifted, switched, um, gone sometimes in the direction you chose and sometimes in the directions that things are chosen for you. This kind of being nimble and career flexibility that has, has been a theme in your career. Do you see that, uh, you know, maybe back when I graduated from school, that wasn't something that was seen as a possibility. Um, but certainly more and more today for people in the future, it is. Do you, do you think that's your path is going to be kind of typical for how people are going to go about their careers? 
I do actually, I do. And I think that it's, I mean, I think you can, some people can have, you know, make more changes than others, but by and large, I think that the idea of building that portfolio career of staying flexible, of, of just constantly finding ways to pick up new skills. I, I think that's going to be really important for everybody. The kind of lifelong learner. That's what mm-hmm. I've been talking to people a lot about is, you know, that adaptability and, and the willingness to learn new skills and to apply. I love your story about the statistics. Um, still, I think the agronomy industry is very sad that you didn't help them. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're, I think they're good. I think there's plenty of other people covering agriculture these days, but you know, that's, well, they'll they'll learn from you. Maybe uh, maybe they'll help them do a magazine for their <laughs> industry. I would love dream come true. Dream come true. If I could do like a biofuels magazine, you know, or soil science today. I don't know. Maybe I'll go launch this magazine. We'll see. Okay. Well, we put it out there into the world now, so it could possibly happen. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to catch up with you today, Mary Ellen. You're a fascinating person and someone that I admire and look up to. So where can we find Mary Ellen Slater in RepCap on the internet? So I would uh, encourage everybody to check out the, the magazine. It's managingeditor.com. And it's just a wonderful resource that we've been building for, for people who serve in, if you want to stay in touch with, let me say this again. I would like everybody to check out managingeditor.com. It's the, the resource hub that we've been building for the modern content marketer. And I think that anybody who wants to, to learn more about content marketing and where it's headed would, would find it helpful. Awesome. And we will also link up to where they can find you and connect with you on LinkedIn or Twitter. You're not always out there on the social medias, but when you are, it's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm there all the time. What are you saying? <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe it's, it comes and goes. I, it comes and goes for me. You know, I fall in and out of love with Twitter. There, I have these moments where I love it and then I, like, I'll leave it for a while and then I come back and I'm like, oh, Twitter, I've missed you. Like, and, I, <laughs> and I miss you always. So I hope to see you there in the future. So thanks for your time today, Mary Ellen. I really appreciate you. And I believe you are an impact maker for me and for many other people in this world. So thank you very much. All right, thank you. One of the best things about the journey of making an impact in the world is the people that you meet along the way and seeing how they're creating impact. My friend, Laurie Rudiman, is one of those people. She's a writer, speaker, and entrepreneur who is setting out to fix work. In her podcast called Let's Fix Work, she's tackling why work is often so miserable for many people and what we can all do to fix it. Here's some of what she's talking about. During the past 10 years, I've developed a huge network of friends and colleagues. These are people who are passionate about fixing work. They have big ideas, They're authors, speakers, consultants, and even HR ladies who want to help workers find purpose and meaning. So I'm starting a podcast to interview my friends who want to fix work. I love the Let's Fix Work podcast, and I think you will too. Check it out and subscribe over at letsfixwork.com. If you want to raise your game at work, you've got to raise your impact. Find out Jennifer's 10 best strategies to make more of an impact at work at jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways. That's jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways.